Welcome to the MedTech Talent Lab, the number one catalyst for advancing careers and building high-performance teams. Sponsored by the Anthony Michael Group, helping companies secure in-demand talent in regulatory affairs, quality, clinical, engineering, R&D, and other areas for medical device, digital health, diagnostics, and other organizations across the U.S. life sciences sector. Here's your host, Mitch Robbins. Hey, hey, welcome back to another live episode here on the MedTech Talent Lab podcast, where we talk all things talent uh, within the MedTech space, as well as the greater life sciences. I'm your host, Mitch Robbins. I'm the founder and managing director at an organization called the Anthony Michael Group, where we help companies from a recruitment perspective to build high-performing teams uh, across MedTech areas like regulatory, quality, and clinical are a vast majority of functions that we serve. I'm joined, as always, by my right-hand guy, Adam Sapi, and our good friends, uh, Nick Swig, the Director of Talent Acquisition at Collegium Pharmaceuticals, and Shandon Hayes, a talent acquisition veteran in her own right who's currently serving um, a company called Pulmonics. Is that how you say it, Shandon? Pulmonics? Correct. All right. Very good. So guys, we are here Wednesdays at 11 o'clock Pacific, 2 o'clock Eastern on LinkedIn. And then be sure if you haven't checked out the podcast, go to iTunes or Spotify, put in the MedTech Talent Lab. You're going to see almost 75 episodes at this point, a culmination of live episodes that we do weekly here, as well as a variety of topics and uh, guests that I've hosted straight from the industry. Uh, so we're going to dig right in. If you are joining us live, leave us a comment. Uh, let us know that you're here. Let us know if you're getting value from this. Let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. We're always looking for great topics, but we're going to dig right into today's topic, and that is maximizing the effectiveness of uh, utilizing contractors and a contingent workforce in general, especially during times of uncertainty. And I think this is going to be a great topic for us to collaborate on because Adam and I, obviously, we only have third-party world perspective, right? From a headhunting perspective, what does it mean to an organization when they're going to bring in contract help? How to go about doing that as far as being a liaison between talent and the organization? But you guys really have the inside track in terms of what are the conversations that are happening internally to make these decisions? Should we be bringing in contractors to begin with? If we do, what are the ramifications? of doing so? What are the pros of doing so? How do we go about making that decision? And who are the stakeholders involved to make those decisions? So I'm excited to jump in. I guess, let me I maybe just lead off by saying some of the ways that we've seen organizations historically use contractors and why. And then we can jump into some of the more granular pieces of this. One primary reason is that the search is going to take a really long time that you feel like it's perhaps a very niche skill set. That talent is in great demand on a full-time basis. And you really need to cover that gap on a temporarily to at least keep the line moving. And so you bring in somebody to help offset some of the workload while you search for that person. Adam, what's another reason why organizations bring in contract help? We've seen it a lot in regulatory affairs where it's project-based. So, hey, we have a 510K submission. We need to get done. Somebody that knows this space very, very well could probably get a lot of it done in four months. Let's say even six months or seven months, it makes sense to bring somebody in on a, a consulting or, or contract basis versus hiring, let's say, a senior RE special, specialist, because then once that project's done, you know, staffing-wise and workload-wise, it, it, it gets... Uh, 
it gets off kilter and you don't want to have to lay somebody off, obviously, if you don't have to for a million different reasons. Nick, what's another reason you've seen as far as why companies bring in contractors? Yeah, a lot of times budgets are set long before we know what actually is going to be our day to day. And so if the headcount was set last you know, November and we're going to try to launch something new, it's oftentimes a lot easier and faster to free up op- OPEX dollars versus headcount dollars and going through the formal approval of getting a headcount. So a lot of times I've seen us use contract uh, help when we're in the process of getting the budgeted headcount for in the longer term. Yep. Shannon, any other perspective as to why companies bring in contractors? Yeah, I think that, you know, to, to Nick's point, budgets are set and that's how we'd ideally like things to happen. But in the real world, we'll have surges in, you know, workloads be due to various unforeseen circumstances, right? So bringing in contractors to help get over that surge or, you know, to help, you know, batten down the hatches while we're trying to figure out a longer term staffing solution is another big reason why I've seen um, bringing in contingent workforce. The EUMDR is a perfect example of a surge in workload, right? How many organizations have augmented their staff just because of the sheer amount of of work uh, with this transition? Another reason I've seen is the leadership team wants to make a change. Twofold. One, they want to make a change and they don't want a gap. And so they're going to bring in somebody. They're going to bring in somebody confidential who's ready to start as a contractor as they make the transition with the leader that they're exiting from the organization. And that leader takes over immediately as a a quick. Another thing is they brought in leadership on a contract basis because they want to do a complete turnaround. And that requires a lot of hard decisions and really a much different skill set than somebody who's either leading a status quo ship or somebody who's in growth mode versus a complete turnaround. It's a much different leader. So, you know, between the four of us, we've shared a variety of different perspectives. Adam, I see something on your face that says you want to add on to that. Yeah, I was just going to add into that perspective too. That person then can be the bad guy or bad girl, you know, and a lot of times that means personnel changes too. And then the new permanent leader comes in with a clean slate. So the contract, the consultant can come in and do a lot of the heavy lifting, make some tough calls, be the bad person. And then, and then, like I said, the new person comes in with a fresh perspective and, and you know, and, and a clean slate, essentially. Definitely. Definitely. And, you know, we're obviously in a weird time right now where half of our industry is full steam ahead, you know, regardless of what you see in the macro news, full steam ahead, hiring as if, you know, business as usual. The other piece of it is what everybody sees in the news where these mass layoffs are happening. A lot of the strategics are going through, you know, big time change and shedding workforce. It seems like lately on the daily, right? And so we're in this really kind of weird situation where there still is uncertainty. Everybody says, or some say, yes, we're in a full-blown recession. Others say, hey, the major stuff is yet to come. You just wait until, you know, a few months from now, it's really going to get bad. Regardless, it's a good opportunity for us to be talking about how companies can really get the most out of decisions from leveraging a contingent workforce. And so I want to transition to you guys, Shandon and Nick. Can you guys shed some light as to what goes on you know, behind the curtain, so to speak, as far as the conversations that are happening when a hiring manager is contemplating whether or not to leverage contract help? Yeah, I mean, I can start. Um, I think there's, a, a, as you just heard from all of us, there's a lot of different examples of when it is appropriate and advantageous to use contract or contingent labor. And I think those are the types of conversations that we start to have with hiring managers and leaders. And one of the things that I tend to listen for is, do we actually need a regular full-time person? And for one reason, we can't make that work today. So we're 
we're looking for a quasi-regular full-time employee, or is it more of the, uh, as Adam put it, the, the project-based, or Mitch, is, as you were talking about it, maybe you're doing a transformation and you need a highly specialized set of skills. I think that's the first part of the conversation because it helps to define the, the profile of the talent because someone who's going to go into a company in a role that is more or less the same as um, everybody else. One example would be like post-market surveillance or pharmacovigilance, which, you know, can ebb and flow depending on a wide variety of things. And if you're sitting side by side with people doing your exact same job, that's a very different profile than someone who might be, um, to Adam's point, working on a brand new 510K to introduce a new product for the company. So we're really trying to understand the, the root cause as to why are we requesting um, contractor to begin with, and and then working from there. Uh, Shannon, I don't know if your experience has largely been the same. Yeah, well, and I think that you have organizations and you have uh, hiring teams that are on a gradient from a more strategic, you know, can balance a short and long term vision, like you were talking about, Nick. And you know, you really take that pause to figure out why we need to hire a body, whether that's FTE or full full time. The other side of that spectrum is, you know, great example is these, you know, we're hearing about layoffs. Well, guess what? The workload didn't change most often for these teams. And so while, you know, the hiring managers have this perception of, oh, my God, I can't hire a full time person. Oh, my God, let's just get a contractor in to bridge the gap. Or, you know, there's the perception that they can get a contractor in with the same skill set faster than an FTE. And I think that that is that sometimes gets people into trouble because that is not the case, especially when you're looking at very, very competitive type roles um, in the marketplace. So, you know, there's there's the strategic side of it. And then there's the, oh, crap, we need some people to help us actually get this work done or else we're going to fall behind. Yeah, Shannon, I love that you just said that because when Mitch started, one of the examples Mitch provided was actually we're, we're going to run a search, but we need someone immediately. And I've heard that one a lot. And I think that points to an assumption that it is faster to recruit um, a contract or temp employee or, or temp resource. And while sometimes and for some functions, I would agree that would be the case, particularly in those areas where there's a scarcity of talent, where you know full well, this search is going to take a long time. The candidate pool in the contract temp and consulting work world is much smaller. And so um, ironically, it, it can be no easier to find somebody on, on temp or contingency versus regular. I think that's a false assumption that sometimes gets made. Yeah. And that it's easy to over rotate on that and, and focus then on the, you know, getting that contractor in, and then you end up settling and you get a warm body. So that doesn't help either. There's very few times where we actually have some good controversy and some differing opinions on this show. And I think now is what I'm like revved up. I'm ready because I think I've got a whole different perspective. I feel like, so we commit to organizations in our business that if you have a contract search, we'll have Candace for you within 72 hours. And I don't think there's been a time where we haven't come through and there's been a variety of different, God knows how many different types of roles that Adam has worked on on a contract basis. But I, I want to kind of expand on this further. So one of the big mistakes, though, that I see outside of the timing piece, one of the big mistakes I see 
is that instead of saying we need a contractor because it's going to take a while, what I see happening is people get three, four months into their search. They don't have somebody. Now they're like, okay, now let's use a contractor. So now not only have they wasted three or four months of, of spinning their wheels and the work is still not getting done, now they're going to fork out some big time cash to bring in a contractor and they still don't have their overarching goal completed, which is to find the right person. So I think that sometimes history in your own business should also lend itself to helping you with your decision. Hey, historically for this position, has it taken, how long has it taken us to find this person? Can we go this long without this vacancy filled, even on a contract basis? And can we manage ourselves or do we really need help now and being honest about that? Because like you guys said, from a TA perspective, I'm sure you're also trying to advise the business. Like, are you really sure you want to do this? Do you need to do this? How does this impact the overarching budget for the rest of your team? Different companies, and you guys have probably been in both scenarios where some companies, the budget for recruiting comes out of talent acquisition or human resources. And sometimes it comes directly from the business itself. And I think that's a different you know, a whole ball of wax to, to talk about too. But Adam, what's your thoughts, man, as far as what they're saying about taking it lo- taking longer? Because I was surprised to hear that. Yeah. And I think they must be very niche uh, scenarios or requir- specific requirements. I'm trying to think even in the 10 years, I think licensure, you know, state of California within healthcare leadership maybe had a few nuanced things. But yeah, to your point, if we commit to you know, a search on the contract side. Yeah, we we always hustle to make sure. And and some of the, you know, we're working till 11 o'clock at night. We know that it's urgent and critical. Um, and then usually the onboarding process is fairly streamlined, you know, start to finish. You know, usually that person's starting within two weeks of, of when we, we engage on it. I was curious to ask Shannon and Nick too, two things always stand out to me when, when you know, if, if you're a hiring manager making that business case. One, does the team have any buy-in or a voice in terms of like burnout? Because, you know, they're going to say, well, I shouldn't even assume that. Does that happen where you go to the team and go, gosh, if we don't bring somebody in, we could p- potentially lose three people because now they're taking on the the workload. And then secondly, and this is a general statement, I don't like to ask for general statements, but normally how do the full-time employees receive a contractor? Because I always hear it from the other side. I was just kind of curious, do they work well? Are they already upset because this person's getting 200 bucks an hour and I'm doing the same job at $80,000 annual or anything like that. I was just kind of curious from your perspective. Yeah. You know, when I'm when I'm qualifying a rec with a manager, especially when we're talking about a sense of urgency, I kind of have a like a, an alarm system, right? Like, so the top number one is like, is this going to impact revenue, cost us money? And is it going to impact attrition on your team. I was just talking with a a leader about this yesterday. I'm like, okay, so as a part of our strategy, how is your team doing? You're down to headcount. And he's like, man, we're we're barely holding it together, right? So, and I've had similar conversations over the years. And sometimes when you dig down, they're like, you know what? We can keep it together. We've got this. And so it helps to put together that overall, you know, strategy of where do we need to go to find this contingent labor in terms of like how the FTEs receive probably depends on the team and on the on the company culture. You have some teams like my philosophy has always been like you're a part of my team as best I can. And then you got, you know, big tech companies that literally separate you out by the color on your badge. Right. Really? OK. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say the same. Um, and, and being a TA leader, 
So talent acquisition is one of those spaces that our volume of work ebbs and flows regularly. So for years, I've had contract recruiters. I've used RPO, which is recruitment process outsourcing. I've used internal regular full-time recruiters. So I've always had these blended teams. And you know, the first thing I would say is that leaders have to be careful because of co-employment concerns. So you know, legally speaking, you cannot treat a contractor or a temp employee as as a true regular employee. That that's going to get you in the hot water. Mm. And I have always been the one to really be over that line slightly, maybe a foot over that line, right? Because I believe in the power of a team over the power of one any day of the week. And I think if the contract support I have, the RPO support I have, and the regular full-time support are working together harmoniously, that they're on the same page about each other's work, that they're resources for one another, you're going to get better outcomes. But the more you do that, the more risk you take on as far as those co-employment concerns. And everybody's got a little bit different sense of um, their tolerance for risk. So I think you absolutely do have situations where contractors are, you know, sort of, they sit in a different space. They don't interact with the employees. They don't get invited to the employee meetings, right? That they're totally alienated. Um, And then you get the opposite uh, where people go even farther than I go, where they've got individual development plans for their contractors, where they do performance reviews. So I think it's a fairly wide spectrum, but largely it comes down to the sensitivity to risk because that co-employment piece can really end up companies in a a lot of hot water. That's eye-opening to me. I thought you were going to say it's you can't treat them differently. And you're like, no, you can't treat them the same. They're they're differently. And they have essentially the same goals, right? So I almost feel like that person's hamstring because they might not be privy to certain information. They're not sitting in on intake meetings or kickoff meetings with the hiring managers or whatever, whatever the differences are, they're expected to produce, but yet they're not, you know, treated the same and and given the same tools to succeed, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and to be clear, co-employment laws are designed to prevent companies turning all of their openings in the contract to, you know, get around paying for things like medical benefits or time okay. off sick yeah. time. So companies, states and, and and the federal government are all very keen on making sure employers are hiring regular full-time employees when it should be a regular full-time employee and only using those temp and contingent resources when it's appropriate to do so. Um, some states have case law, like California's case law, to suggest you, you don't want to keep anybody on temporary for uh, more than six months. Otherwise, the message it sends to the government is, this is a long-term resource that we're cheaping out and going with a benefits-ineligible role. So the, the rules are there for a very good reason, and they drive better decision-making on the inside. But it does create a disparate experience, oftentimes, for, for contractors or contingent labor. That makes sense. And because a lot of people I've talked to in this in this world have will do a two year contract and then they're like, no matter how much they love me, they can't convert me after two years or or continue it. So that would explain that. So maybe that state's yeah. laws allow for a longer contract. I would say that. Sorry to interrupt. Depending on where you live and how you have that contingent relationship set up, I would even say two years is probably a little too long. Like, And plus, at that point in time, you might as well have brought them in full time. You're going to save money in the long run. You're going to retain that talent. And odds are you're probably going to have attrition somewhere on your team during that time frame. There's a number of reasons. But, you know, there's like 
Mitch, uh, like Nick said, uh, California has some pretty decent laws. Washington State also does as well. There is a a tech company uh, in my backyard that a number of years ago kind of kicked all that off because they had these perma contractors, as I've coined them, where they just keep people on and on and on, like you know, like we just talked about, to kind of dodge those benefits. So if you are leader or hiring manager or company looking at bringing on contingent labor also make sure that you're you're really thinking about what does this mean in the short term and the long term and we were talking offline too kind of gaming the system hey we're reporting to wall street x amount of revenue per headcount and you and and then i we learned hey these folks don't count against your headcount so they're they're going to your uh, top line but and bottom line but they're not they're not counting against you. So there's advantages there. I've seen it a lot of folks that are on H-1B work visa. That's where I'll hear a lot of the two-year contracts or something. So it's kind of a workaround, I think, there in terms of sponsorship. That's not the only case, but I've always been concerned about that. Like, why would, yeah, why would you bring somebody on on a contract basis for 18 months or two years and pay a premium and then have all those things? And, and not, now I'm learning a lot more. This is, uh, mm-hmm. I yeah, you guys have worked, both of you have worked for a couple major organizations. Was at any given time, was there always contractors being leveraged? Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of my former employers spent $100 million a year on contingent labor. $100 million. Yeah. Across different functional areas or, is it, or was it a lot of IT, a lot of finance or? Across the entire organization. And that included things like RPO or um, IT M- master service providers, MSPs. But that was comprehensive. I mean, that that's a staggering amount of money. And it's it's economies of scale, right? When you work for these giant companies, all of the numbers look bigger. But it is a component of every company I've ever worked with or for that there has to be some sort of blend because there's strategic reasons why it's to a company's benefit and at times to a talent's benefit, right? I mean, one of the challenges I struggle with is that I'm a builder. I love to build or renovate and I come in and rip out the system, change the process, introduce new programs. But when I get to the point where everything's running smoothly and you know my team is executing, I don't really feel like I want to be there anymore, right? I, I want to be where the action is. And so I think I'm getting to a point in my career where that consulting direction is, is probably a better choice where a lot of that organic learning and development that I've needed throughout the last 20 years is, you know, mostly there. And I, I want to focus more on applying that. So I, I think that there isn't a right way to work or a wrong way to work. I think there are just different pros and cons. I was going to ask too, with the gig economy here, you know, I've seen economists, I've seen ranges from 45 to 60% of the workforce by 2025, which is five minutes away being consultative like like this contingent is that a possibility or are those laws still in place where hey you can't have those big of numbers at a at a large company or or a small company for that matter i don't see numbers like that i think when they're talking about that they're talking about companies like you know uber lyft right that that have these non-employees that simply opt in to uh, do some work as a as a contractor independent contractor i think we will see a growth in that space 100% 
to the tune of 40 to 60% of the workforce, I got to tell you, I don't see that anytime in the next 15 years, much less in two. I don't know, Shandon may have a very different opinion. I think it depends on the industry and it depends on the type of job. You know, when I hear those gross generalizations like that, it makes me makes me wonder. I'm like, OK, well, tell me more about that, because those are really big numbers. And then people take that and it's like, sorry, roles like sales probably never going to be a part of the gig economy. Right. Uh, and I think that especially where you have parts of a business that there has chronically been a talent shortage, like QARA, great example. It feels like there are so few companies bringing in talent to build the broader pipeline. Like I think that one, those people could could take up contracts. And I knew a couple that did like a number of years ago. Um, but the flip side to that is that those individuals are comfortable with a certain amount of risk because being like a consultant or a contract worker means that you don't have a guarantee of a steady income. Yep. Most people don't have a high tolerance for that. Yeah. So I do think that maybe generationally we might see a little bit more of that with Gen Z and maybe, you know, some of the millennials just as things have gone but I do think that it will ebb and flow through people's careers. They might be a gig worker. They might be an entrepreneur. Then they might go back and work full time for a couple of years. I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to bring up the generational piece, too. And I don't, I don't like to make the, you know, tag people with a certain thing. But if we're seeing, let's say across the board, average tenure is less than 30 months, then I'm thinking, well, why not bring somebody on on a, on a two year contract or 18 month contract? And, and it does seem like the, the younger generations enjoy that project based. Versus, hey, I'm not going to work for one company for 40 years, get a gold watch and, you know, sail off into the sunset. That's not happening anymore. So I was just kind of curious. And I have seen that in regulatory and even, you know, quality R&D for that matter. I, you know, I, I can see an upside or a, a benefit to doing that. Yeah, yeah I think I've we've got some major infrastructure that needs to be replaced and changed, right? Because we are still in an employer-enabled benefits model. Everyone gets their health care from their employer. And yeah. so I think on a federal level, if we started to see some shifts in terms of the, the policy development away from this employer-centric model toward a more of an individualistic model, then that I think could enable the growth of, of that gig economy. I, I say in addition to general generational differences, I think there's also some socioeconomic differences where if you're looking at people in the you know minimum wage to you know 150% of minimum wage, the percentage in the gig economy is substantially higher than folks that would meet the sort of federal highly compensated uh, threshold. So so I think you really got to take those numbers and, and start applying some of the filters to better understand where is that likely to show up? Um, because I don't think it's going to be a consistent growth across all generations, across all socioeconomic levels. And I think the other piece, too, that people often forget is that, you know, we all I always hear and, and joke about, you know, those darn millennials and Gen Z. Well, guess what? Those younger people are earlier in their careers and earlier career individuals are going to change jobs more frequently and have a shorter tenure 
then those people that have been in the workforce longer maybe have a higher level role or have different life, life circumstances. You know, there is an innate curiosity and a drive to learn, I think, that guess what? That's why people leave. And I think that's why the gig economy could be so attractive to those people that are earlier in their career or, you know, they they want to go out and like travel and do different things. Like I think about nurses and not a lot of people, I think, put nurses in the gig economy but they have what what are called travel nurses, which for the rest of us, they're contractors, right? And yeah. they they have these certain stints and they will go from, you know, state to state after they've got a couple of years under their belt. They get to see different things. They get to learn from different people. And that's really attractive to a lot of people. So I think that there's a lot of different motivators. And for the individual professionals, there is an appeal to, you know, work working the gig economy and working as a contingent, part of the contingent workforce for a period of time. And there's a huge premium, like we know with the travel nurses. I mean, some of them are making $1,000 a day in the Bay Area or whatever with certain specialties. But if there's a premium on what you do, then like Mitch and I have those conversations with folks, you can build in, hey, you you have to go to the open market and hopefully it's not Cobra or something like that, but you can get health coverage and it's not going to be from your employer, but you just have it that way. And then that's just part of your 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 budget, your, your line item budget for the whole year. And you're doing different projects with different companies, but you know, hey, I'm paying... 1200 bucks a month for for my benefits and then putting monies away for retirement on your own too because you might not have the 401k match and all the you know pensions and all that stuff either so it's on your own a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well guys, good stuff. I'm going to bring this to a close for today. Um, I appreciate all the insights and and I know that uh, folks watching this back I'm sure will too. Guys, if you're just tuning in to this for the first time, we'll be here next week again on Wednesday, 11 o'clock Pacific, 2 o'clock Eastern. It's called the MedTech Talent Lab Podcast. Check it out wherever you consume podcast content as well. Over 70, almost 75 episodes at this point. So uh, we'll keep them rolling for you and uh, as always we appreciate your feedback. If there's anything you'd like us to cover in future episodes, definitely feel free to send us uh, a direct message and let us know your thoughts. Thanks so much, guys. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. For more content-rich episodes, log on to theanthonymichaelgroup.com or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.